0: Welcome. We are live with another episode of One Big Idea. I am joined by the incomparable Derek Davies, co-founder and president of Medallion, creating the home base for artists. Derek, how are you
1: doing? I'm great, man. Happy to be here with uh, my favorite podcaster on my favorite podcast.
0: Yeah, so I'm I'm excited because it's it's kind of funny how we met. I mean, if I remember it correctly, you can you can let me know if I was wrong, but basically you were listening uh, or reading like one of the newsletters and just like hit me up on a DM and we started like diving in from there.
1: No, we've got a uh, podcast at the uh, origin of our Genesis story. So we, are right, heard you Carly. On, yeah. yeah, I heard you on Carly on overpriced, overpriced JPEG. JPEG. and I was like, oh, yo, this guy just fully gets it. Like he understands the beauty of Web three, but also like some of the current like inefficiencies of Web three around the music experience for the average fan. And then you obviously knew Vanessa from working on Verite together. Vanessa works with us at Medallion. And so I hit Vanessa and I was like, yeah, you got to connect me to Austin. Like he's just saying everything that, you know, I've been thinking, we've been thinking. So, um, so yeah, I guess that was like last summer or fall. And then, yeah, man, we've just been uh, uh, building out, doing our thing ever since, man. It's been great.
0: Yeah, no, I, I mean, I'm very grateful for for that connection, and you know, now consider you one of my closest friends in in Web three and more broadly. It's been really amazing to watch you build Medallion from from where it was at when we first you know got into contact over the summer to where you guys are today. But before we dive fully into Medallion, I would love for you for you to give a little bit of a primer on like who Derek Davies is, how you got your start in in the music industry. Maybe if you could take it back to the year 2008, where were you? What were you doing? And uh, yeah, how'd you get in the music? Oh man, we're going way back,
1: um, way back. So 2000, yeah, 2008. I'm in my dorm room writing my music blog. Um, I had a blog in college. Uh, it was called Good, "Good Weather for Airstrikes, which is actually the uh, English language translation of a Cigarras song called "Viejarvela til Rasa. So it's a very much a beautiful full circle moment that Cigarras is one of our uh, launch artists with Medallion, but um. I guess before I get ahead of myself there. So I had this music blog Good with it for airstrikes where I was writing about a lot of bands before they broke. And um, I had two uh, UK music industry guys come over, a lawyer by the name of Nikki Steen um, and an A&R guy from XL Recordings by the name of Imran Ahmed. And um, they both took me out to lunch on their way, to, like passing through New York on their way to South by Southwest. I guess this was technically 2007. And, you know, asked, you know, basically I, I'd written about a couple of their bands and they both wanted to know, like, you know, who are the best bands in New York at the moment. And I had just been to a fundraiser at like a Columbia uh, University frat house um, and seen Vampire Weekend as the as the house band. And like, you know, went up to them afterwards and I was like, you yeah, know, I got this music blog and, you know, can I do you have any music? And so they gave me like the blue CDR, which like ba- which became their debut album. I think the, the album was basically that mixed plus two songs. Uh, and so I sent that off to both of these guys and they both went to South by and kind of came back a week later and they were like, yo, this is so much better than anything we saw at South by. Um, and so I um, basically ended up scouting for both of them. So I got an internship at Excel uh, over in the UK uh, that summer and I was scouting for uh, the lawyer, Nicky Steen, who went on to become my lawyer and my lawyer at Neon Gold um, and has been you know, a close advisor and friend ever since. And so kind of had, like, a front row seat to their, like, rocket ascent in uh, across 2007. Like, they went from, you know, un- completely unknown to on the cover of Spin Magazine, uh, like, within four months. They were, like, the poster, ch- poster ch- children for, like, the breakout band of, like, the MP3 blog era. Um, and so uh, had this, like, front row seat to all of that. And then a year later, um, I came across Passion Pit on MySpace and... At the time I was like, okay, I kinda like saw firsthand the whole vampire weekend thing and I always had this aspiration of having my own label someday and doing things myself. And so um, I brought Passion Pit to my stepbrother, um, Sid Butler, who was in a band called Lesabi Favre and had an indie label in New York called French Kiss Records um, where he put out the Five records and local natives and a few other artists. And I was like, you need to sign this band, but I also want you to let me like release their debut single and like show me, show me the ropes, show me how to do this. And I had this idea of um, starting kind of a seven inch, a, a blog based seven inch singles label. So like, it sounds quaint now, but like the pinnacle of like, uh, collectability and music and technology in, you know, 2008, um, we've obviously come a long way with everything that's happening in Web3. Um, so, you know, September 2008, um, I, we launched Neon Gold with my, my best friend and co-founder um, Lizzie Plappinger and put out our debut release, which was Bash & Bit's debut single, um, Sleepyhead with uh, Better Things on the B side. And so we kind of rebranded, I kind of took down good weather for airstrikes and then relaunched everything as neon gold, this kind of blog based label where we would, you know, release these like limited edition, 300, 500,000 quantity, um, seven inch singles, 10 inch singles. And then we would throw like monthly club nights to promote it. And it was all like handshake deals, no digital rights, just kind of like, you know, selling out one and then moving on to the next. And I had a- some relationships with artists like from the, the previous blog days. And so Marina and the Diamonds had become like a pen pal of mine, um, and reached out to me and was like, "Yo, I love the Passion Pit song, and I, I just signed to Atlantic Records, and you know they want to like start started off with like an indie label, like a more credible thing. Could we do the first single with you guys in Young Gold?" And so um, our second release was Marina and the Diamonds' debut single, a song called "Obsessions," um, and then you know both of those kind of songs blew up, and then we ended up releasing Marina's debut EP as well. And I went over and spent the whole summer. A whole following summer in the UK. And that was where I met Ellie Goulding. And we went on to release her debut single and then uh, Gautier and Iconopop and The Naked and Famous, a number of other artists in that period. And so it just kind of became this crazy like two year run while Lizzie and I were both still uh, in college full time at NYU. Um, and like, I think the hope was always like, all right, let's out a couple of records. is basically like a break-even business model, but maybe we can like parlay this into like an a job out of college. And like, I don't think ever in our wildest dreams would it have connected the way it did. And we ended up actually being able to sign a joint venture with Columbia Records um, the day after we graduated in 2010. Um, and through that, that allowed us to, that funded us, but also kind of taught us how to um, graduate to full-length albums and proper like full-length multi-album record campaigns. And St. Lucia became our first ever full-length album signing. Um, a band came, called Magic Man became the second, and then Heim became the third. And so we had an amazing three year run there and then ultimately moved over to Atlantic Records in 2014, where we were actually reunited with Marina um, and released her third, fourth and fifth records. Um, We were also reunited with Charlie XCX, who we had put on her debut live shows um, at some of our monthly club nights when she first came over to the U.S. and like. 2013 so there was like a friendship and a relationship there we hadn't worked together previously but she had just done the first album and it was this weird thing where like she was signed to Atlantic out of the UK but it was really popping off in America but they didn't really have like the right team for her in America so when we moved over to Atlantic they were like listen we know we've got something incredible here we've got an incredible artist you guys are already friends. You seem to really get here, get Do You want to just like step into this project right away, do the second album with Charlie. And so we ended up releasing um, Sucker, her second album, which spawned her first number one hit, our first number one hit, um, which was Boom Clap. Uh, that was also the summer that she dropped Fancy with Iggy Azalea. So that was a real crash course in like indie to big time pop Um you know, the real, like, f- fast track for us um, on literally, like, our first release at Atlantic. And then we were kind of off and running. And so we, um, from there, we signed an artist called Matt Mason, um, Christine and the Queens, uh, the Knox, um, and a number of other artists, and um, had an incredible partnership with Atlantic for the better part of um, 10 years. And then I guess, uh, at the end of 2020 was when I kind of first became uh, aware of NFTs and went down the Web3 rabbit hole. And you know, I guess I'll, I'll pause there if you want to spend any more time on the uh, on the neon gold portion. But um, yeah, that's kind of the uh, ten thousand. No, preview. I love
0: I love the the breakdown. We started in 2008. We made our way all the way to 2020. And if you know, for any music fans like myself. You more or less just describe like the soundtrack of my (laughs) twenties, like going from early like graduating high school to college to you know being in twenty aughts in uh, in Seattle, like listening to a lot of these bands. So it's been fun getting to to know you and realize that you've had a hand in like a lot of a lot of big releases that a lot of people you know our age have have listened to. I guess the the question I would want to have or have around that experience is what did the relationship with particularly with Atlantic look like? Well, like were they involved in day to day operations? Like what was their role uh, in you know facilitating the relationship with Neon Gold?
1: Yeah. So we were you know, effectively a frontline label. Like I think when we started out, it was a joint venture technically, but um, you know, we started out, we had our own office space in Brooklyn and we were kind of, you know, we actually, Can you uh, describe
0: real quick, Derek, can you describe what a frontline label is versus a joint venture? Cause some of our audience may not understand that.
1: Yeah. So like a joint venture is generally with like a label that it technically is not owned by the major partner, but they partner on all releases and split the proceeds Um, accordingly, a frontline label is like a fully owned and operated major label imprint. Um, frontline labels usually have office space within the major partner. They're fully, they're fully owned by the major partner. So we had, you know, we had like this one foot in the indie world. And we also had this mechanism where we could continue to release singles and EPs with artists outside of Atlantic, usually as like a testing ground and kind of incubator to like, test the relationship and see if it made sense to do something larger with Atlantic, but also as like an outlet for us to do kind of just more passion, uh, passion project based stuff. So, um, when I say that we were effectively a frontline label really by the end, you know, we were releasing, you know, three or five, three to five albums a year with Atlantic. And we actually just found it more efficient just to give up our Brooklyn office space and just work full time out of Atlantic. And this is pre pandemic. Um, So we were, you know, functioning in most ways like a frontline label. We were very much like an integral part of the family and uh, considered Atlantic um, a family in, in that respect. And they were incredible partners. And there's, you know, one of the reasons that we signed with Atlantic, like, I think, you know, Columbia was an incredible place to be signed as an artist, but they didn't have a much of a history of, like, successful joint ventures. And with Atlantic, you know, that was where John Janet got his start with Fueled by Ramen. And, like, that was really, like, you know, very different sound from what we were doing, but I think what he had built, his kind of arc, like, I never had the aspiration to kind of, like, go from the indie label to like the head of, you know, the, the major label executive head of Interscope that, which is, you know, what his trajectory ultimately ended up becoming, but like what the success that he was able to the culture, he was able to cultivate and the identity within the major label system with a partner like Atlantic was something that really resonated with us. And so whether it was um, that or Al's love, Skrillex's label or um, canvas back, which you know, has done group love and uh, alt J and, um, War on drugs, et cetera. Um, They had a long history of like these, you know, cultivating incredible partnerships. And there was just such an amazing culture there. You know, Craig and Julie, who ran the label, have both been there for 20 plus years. There's a stability that you just don't have anywhere else in the major label system. So, um, you know, we really truly love the relationship and their belief in artist development. And so, really, you know, despite being a joint venture, really went all in on that partnership. And I think, you know, over time, um, I began to just kind of grow disenfranchised with the kind of deals that you had to offer artists in the major label system. And this is not an Atlantic specific thing. I actually think they had some of the more progressive and artist friendly deals in the major label system. But just the kind of parameters, you know, we were always a very like artist friendly label. We always had incredibly close relationships with the artists. Any artist we worked with had probably crashed on our couches or our parents' couches when they were on tour. Um, and, you know, as you know, I, as options began to open up for other artists, and the kind of narratives began to change around, you know, what what artists should and should not be doing in terms of their their deal structures, um, you know, I began began to become just a bit disenfranchised with the kind of deals that I had to do for artists. And so, um, you know, when I as I became more and more aware of web three, it seemed like this incredible new space, this new opportunity um, to help empower artists to achieve like a, you know, creative and economic freedom that isn't necessarily possible in the current major label system. And, you know, that's a big cornerstone of the mission statement with medallion.
0: Yeah. So to that end, like, Speaking to your, your entry into web three and, and NFTs and like the web three music space, like what, what particularly attracted you to it? How did you get your feet wet? And and ultimately, how did you get to a place of deciding to co-found a company in, in this space?
1: Yeah. So I, I think it was just like, it just, it was what was the most immediately attractive was this idea of like creating value around music and art in a way that like, wasn't possible on the rails of the current music industry. I think like, I, beyond like the major label deal structure stuff, I think it was just like music was becoming more and more disposable. And it became harder and harder to cut through the noise, the TikTokification of everything, everything was trending shorter and shorter. And like, you know, it's something that you hear commonly from artists. And I was hearing from all of my artists was like they just felt like they had to be it was more important that they were like content creators and social media influencers than it was that they were like amazing artists. So this idea of like having this space, having this surface that like can exist outside of the frameworks of you know, DSPs like Spotify and Apple, where artists can just like experiment and release things that don't have to show up as their latest release on Spotify or Apple Music and, you know, create audio visual, like invest in audio visual experiments that they might actually be able to see a return on investment in um, because it's more than just like, you know, putting it on social media. Um, so I think that was the initially the most attractive thing. And it was, I think it was RAC, like his initial experiments. This was like August or September of 2020, like really early days um, and, uh, one of my artists, the Knox, um, they were, cl- you know, we did a lot of stuff with RIC back in the day with, um, uh, both neon gold, but then also RIC and the Knox. And so, um, we kind of went, started to go down the rabbit hole together and young and sick was an artist that I've worked with on the independent side for years. And he was like, you know, for that era of NFTs, he was like, it was like tailor-made for him, this format, he had been releasing these like one minute animated songs that he'd been putting on uh, Instagram every day since like 2017. And it was like, Oh, now here's this like format where you don't have to give it up for free and you can actually monetize it in a way that like, you know, creates an actual sustainable architecture for him to realize his career as an artist. Cause he was someone who was like this incredible like auteur where like The music was amazing, but like the visuals were just truly like one of a kind. And he had, he had done all the visuals for all the Foster People, Foster the People campaigns. He'd done major brand deals, did a Maroon 5 album, but he was like, you know, a musician, but was still primarily living like brand check to brand check. And so um, with the Knox and Young and Sick and and Pussy Riot, who I was working with at the time, I kind of, we all kind of went down the rabbit hole, end of 2020, early 2021. um, And all of those initial drops just happened to land at like the, peak of that like initial like nifty gateway music nft gold rush um, and so while it was like you know amazing seeing all three of these artists have an enormous amount of success i mean in, in some of other cases like life-changing success um especially after you know two years of lost pandemic touring income well that was absolutely incredible like seeing like you know our creators get the bag so to speak um it also like very much was apparent that like This was not sustainable and this was a little bit of a bubble, but that there was this incredible um, technology running under the hood where if you could figure out a way to administer it in a way that was accessible and digestible to the average fan the 99 percent are not crypto native aren't comfortable comfortable with cryptocurrency don't have a digital wallet you know don't know what an nft is and don't really want to learn feel immediately overwhelmed by the whole experience that there was this like incredible opportunity to really like help you know revolutionize the artist fan relationship and help artists own their fan relationships in a way that wasn't really possible within the current digital music landscape of the time and so um, around that time, I, I reached out to my two co-founders, um, Matt Jones, who was the, the founder and CEO of, um, of Songkick, and uh, an old friend of mine, Stephen Valmarescu who I've known since high school, um, who was also at Songkick, but also founded DC's largest uh, independent music festival, or actually largest music festival, Full Stop, um, All Things Go, um, and started to put our heads together around like what this kind of model could look like around creating tools to help artists onboard their fans into this space in a way that felt accessible and didn't feel overwhelming and in a way that would resonate with the with the average fan. Because I think at that time, you know, there were so many incredible builders in the space, but very few who could, I guess, maybe synthesize these concepts for, in a way that like was accessible to the average fan, the average artist, the average manager. And I, and so we kind of put our heads down and, and started building and beginning of 20, spring 2021 and then um closed our seed round and announced the company in um, early 2022 and then launched our v1 community uh platform product with um tyco in august of uh of 2022 so um it's been a been a whirlwind it's been, been an amazing ride and we're, we're now a team of 20 and you know we've got eight artists um on the platform now we've got um, Tycho, Jungle, uh, Sigur who I mentioned before, um, my big full circle moment, um, Santa Gold, a band called Palais Royal, um, and then recently it's kind of scaled up to like the next tier of artists with Elenium and Greta Van Fleet and My Morning Jacket. And so, um, really like honored to be working with like some of the, the biggest, creators in the world and some of the most forward thinking artists in the world. Um, but really coming from all, all shape, all, all sides of the music industry, all genres, all different kinds of fan bases. Um, and to see this concept, you know, resonating with, with, with all of them and the response from the industry and the response from fans has been you know, incredibly validating and affirming. Yeah. It's, it's been amazing to
0: watch. I'm personally in the Tycho fan club. I think I was in there like in the Tyco community From if it wasn't day one, it was like it was pretty close. If it wasn't day one, and it's it's been great to like jump in and be able to vote on like cover art, and I just collected the the new format of their original uh, vinyl that came out, and so we'll we'll talk more about that and the different products that you're offering. But I guess at a high level, just like what is Medallion like? What is it solving for? Because when we talked, I think this was back in the summer, and you had a very eloquent way of describing like the issues that. Uh, arose with the traditional fan clubs and how Web3 could solve them. I think that's something that like people may not register a lot of the issues that artists have to deal with when it comes to interacting directly with their community.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, Medallion, we're really trying to build the most robust possible community platform for creators from every sector, starting with musicians, because musicians are the most influential creators on earth. And that's also where our relationships and our expertise lies. But like, really, it, it's, at the, it's kind of a simple concept under the hood. It's like really um, helping artists to bring their fan ecosystems back onto artists owned and operated channels, really for the first time since social media fragmented that ecosystem over a decade ago. Like I, I grew up in this era of like super engaged fan forums and message boards where, you know, you would hear from the artist directly and meet other fans and you know, the cigar 18 seconds till sunset uh, in their official site was, was was one of those places. I remember I met another fan and we drove from like Charlottesville, Virginia to uh, to Madison square garden for their first um, Madison square garden theater headline. And like, those relationships, they're just like those places evaporated with the introduction of social media. Now the conversation was happening over here on Twitter, over here on Reddit, over here on Instagram. And it's just become completely fragmented and it's kind of an anonymous sea there. You lose that personal relationship. Um, and you also lose the ability to like, communicate not only directly to your fans, but also like within like a experience that feels true to your creative and true to the world that you build with your art. Um, It's not a very custom experience. It's um, you know, it's not necessarily uh, it's very much one size fits all. And so I think, you know, obviously the way things evolved then with social media in terms of artists, not being able to, to own that data and own that relationship. um, And also the way the live music industry evolved where like, you know, right now, you know, artists, audiences, their fan bases, they, they exist in these little black boxes all over the internet. So there's this is a little black box over here on Instagram, over here on TikTok, over here on Facebook. Um, none of these black boxes talk to each other. So it's incredibly difficult to get like a holistic view of who your biggest fans actually are. You kind of have like anecdotal evidence around like, you know, who maybe like is commenting on every post if you're like able to monitor it that closely. But like, it's really hard for artists to know like, the difference between you, know, you, Austin, who's been to twenty Fred Again shows, and me, who's been to three Fred Again shows, like I wish I'd been art- twenty. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I'd been to three, man. Um, so it's like it's uh, it, it's really hard for artists to get like a holistic view of who their biggest fans are, and arguably the biggest black box of all is the kind of stranglehold that ticketing companies and promoters have on ticketing data, live audience data. So you can be, you can play a sold out show at Madison Square Garden and not actually know a single thing about anyone in attendance, not actually be able to like reach those fans directly after the show. Um, So everything that we're doing with Medallion is really in service of helping artists to own their fan relationships and better understand their fans and communicate with fans directly. And so everything we're building is completely white label built natively into the artist's Existing website. So it exists at tycho music.com slash community or Heimer, which is Icelandic for home, dot cigaros.com. Um, or the Royal Um, So it all feels native and accessible and familiar to fans. You're not asking them to download an app. You're not asking them to go to some other site and sign up for something. Um, and when you land on that page, it, it feels like clicking into the VIP section of the website. You're unlocking like another layer to the artist creative universe that feels consistent with the world that that artist has built. And you're also restoring value to the artist's website, which is this like incredibly underutilized surface Um And so um, in doing so, we built a scenario where, you know, you're meeting the fans where they're comfortable, but also um, you're building this into existing artist-owned and operated channels where artists can own that, artists can and do own that data 100%. And they can own those fan relationships in a way that isn't possible for them anywhere else. So the idea is, you know, you, an artist may have... 10 million monthly listeners on spotify and 2 million uh followers on instagram and they may only have 10 20 30 50 000 people in their medallion community in their in their web3 community but those are going to be those 10 50 000 people those are going to be their biggest fans their biggest evangelists the ones who are actually going to move the needle for their business and they'll be able to reach those people directly and so that's a pretty revolutionary concept for for most artists which is not something that like most fans necessarily understand. I think like yeah. fans don't realize that when an artist has a million followers, they have to pay to reach more than eight or nine percent of them if that right um they don't know that like they they, they don't know that their favorite artist doesn't know that doesn't have any way of knowing that they've attended you know 40 taylor swift shows which as we saw with the whole um taylor swift kind of pre-sale debacle um you know so many artists are being like oh well i you know i i've done so many fans being like i've done this this and this i've been to this many shows like why can't like you just connect to my Spotify and my Instagram and my merch right. history and like you know determine access based on that. It's because these black boxes they don't speak to other they don't get, don't engage with one another in that way. Um, and so building tools for artists to get to know their fan base um, and be able to re- reward, target, and reward and identify their top fans um, is really kind of a, you know our north star with Medallion.
0: Yeah. And it's funny because you're hitting on a lot of concepts. You know, when I initially designed the season, the whole idea was around what's the catalyst for Web3 adoption and, and really creating an entire theme of like music. And so... The issues that you've outlined are ones that like when I had Verite on two weeks ago, we talked about how she would play concerts and have no idea who went there. Or we chatted – You know, I had a, a story about Mike Shinoda who I got to meet last year about how the Linkin Park was the at one point the biggest act on Facebook and they couldn't reach wow. all of their fans. They couldn't even reach a fraction of them unless they wanted to pay the amount of a Super Bowl ad in order to, to now advertise to the people that they had built a relationship
1: were- with. And they were the first artists to, like, lean in on Facebook and be like, yo, exactly. here's this awesome place to gather our fans and, and bring them all together. Like, they kind of, you know, they didn't put Facebook on the map necessarily, but, like, in terms of, like, you know, artist communities, like, they, they validated validated the yeah. No, for sure. And they it, did. And
0: nice
1: I'm like, yeah. yeah. So he shared that story with us um, plenty of times. And he's been an amazing sounding board for us as we develop this. And that's, like, really been the name of the game with us is, like, you know, we have You know, I'm drawing from 15 years of pain points on the label side, you know, Stephen doing the same and Matt from the ticketing and promotion side. But then we're also like, you know, we're partnering with artists where we can really like go back to back with them and and hear their pain points and like hear their experiences and like what they want to solve for. So like, you know, with these launch partners, it's really about finding artists who want to kind of share that with us and kind of go back to back with us in terms of iterating on the product and making this the most powerful tool that it can be for artists.
0: No, 100%. And you know, I'd love to dig in on the benefit for fans because the artist benefit is really clear, right? This idea of ownership. I think we've clearly outlined where the system has been broken and why this could be such a value add for, for artists. But why, why would fans get on board with, with this new concept of ownership and, and having these you know, things that they can collect and what have you?
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, I think it's like a slightly slower burn concept for a fan because they are not they are not exposed to these inefficiencies that are that frustrate artists that artists struggle with. Like they don't actually re- necessarily realize that there's a problem that Web3 needs to fix. So I think in terms of like how you message it to fans, you know, it's really key to us that like we're not We're not leading with the technology, like we're leading with the experience. Like we're really abstracting away the technology and the crypto and any mentions of Web3 or NFTs and leading with the experience and and meeting them at a place where they're already comfortable. We're not necessarily asking them to get incredibly excited about digital ownership and like digital assets, uh, full stop day one. Like we're kind of easing that into, you know, digital like to assets that can unlock a new level of experience. So I think with, you, know, you mentioned the the Tycho 20th anniversary of, of his debut EP Science of Patterns, um, that's a record that was never released uh, digitally. So it, it was his debut EP released it 20 years ago and he had released it physically only. And it's never been available on streaming platforms or anything. And so for the 20th anniversary, he wanted to release this kind of immersive collectible version that, you know, fans could collect it. And they had this multi-track album experience within a single NFT purchase, which, you know, it's not a first of its kind, but it's not something that any major artist has done to this point um, in terms of like, you know, creating a listening experience that feels familiar and comparable to what fans know and understand on Spotify or Apple Music or SoundCloud, and so in being able to you know, collect this digital record, so to speak, um, and then unlock all of this bonus content and unlock all of these rewards. So there were you know 107 golden ticket rewards that were everything from um, the synthesizer that Tycho used to create that album, uh, create that record and play his first live shows to a, a virtual or in-person studio tour to some one-of-one and limited edition artworks that he created a uh, Tycho branded ledger stacks. Um, and then also like a more immersive um, notes experience from the artist himself. So um, this idea around kind of like taking this, 20 year old physical asset and then creating not only like not only like unlocking new um, incremental revenue from that, but also unlocking like a heightened fan experience around that. And similarly, play Royale are an artist that we're working with who kind of live in that, like somewhere between like My Chemical Romance and 21 Pilots, very much like that incredibly rabid young fan base with like a huge emphasis on like world building and lore and storytelling. And the drummer Emerson he creates all the visuals. Um, he's like written all the mythology. He's written multiple books, comic books. He's released a cosmetics line. Like All the fans come to the shows dressed up as their favorite characters from Obsidian, which is the name of the world that the, the band inhabits. And he'd released a, um, a hardcover graphic novel um, called The Bastards and had sold that out and uh, then released a, a paperback version and sold that out. And so we released the first digital pressing Um, of the Bastards um, a week ago, limited to 333 editions um, and sold it out instantly. But um, what fans got was an elevated experience where for the first time there were moving visuals and animations. You can have music, you can have um, video, um, and they got this elevated experience that physical formats don't allow. And not only that, but all 333 collectors um, got their names, got the option for their name or handle to be printed in the next physical pressing of their next graphic. So figuring out ways to unlock experiences that fans are excited about that don't strictly require them to just be bullish on digital ownership or digital assets more broadly um, and figuring out ways to integrate this into you know, these artists existing traditional business verticals and additional uh, activity, um, whether that's you know, merch, recorded music, touring, et cetera.
0: Yeah, if I were to summarize it, it's using technology to elevate experiences. I shared a quote with the... Doodle's team earlier this week is a Steve Jobs quote. I'm going to paraphrase it, but he mentioned how often, particularly like in booms, people make the mistake of starting with the technology and working their way backwards to the user experience. And I think nowhere has that been more prevalent than Web3, where it's like, this is the panacea, like it's going to cure all. We should just start with this and we'll build everything and figure it out. Where in actuality, what you should always be doing is always starting with the user experience, always starting with the problem. Problem, and then working your way backwards to the technology, because it's not, you know, it, it, it doesn't have to be the solution. It's about finding the right solution for the experience you're trying to create.
1: No, I mean, I, I was not familiar with that quote, but I definitely need to get it like framed and hung in the office because that is, like, very <laughs> much, that's very much the mission statement. That's fully like the North Star of everything um, that, that we're building. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so with that, I, I love there's a couple of different angles I want to take here. One, the acts that you named earlier, like is it eight eight uh, artists that are on Medallion now? Those are like household names. Like, it, for a lot of people that are familiar with Web three music, know that it's been a fairly independent grassroots movement. And there's a variety of reasons for that in terms of like the music entities that a lot of people will think of that are on like Sound XYZ. You know those artists need to own like hundred percent, or or have like a very favorable label deal to be able to do NFTs. And you've taken the very different approach and gone, you know, mainstream first. Why? Why did you decide to to go that route?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you know, we yeah, we definitely have taken like more of a top down approach than than yeah. you see from other ventures in the space. Um, but the idea being there, like, you know, we're really focused on you know, fast tracking mass adoption, however we can. And I think partnering with some of the biggest artists in the world, partnering with the you know, some of the most influential creators on earth allows us to scale this to as many people as possible in the hopes of fast tracking this mass adoption and give us the most compelling case studies so that, you know, the idea here is we're, you know, we're, we're currently in a bit of a, like a a, a very curated private beta, where it's you know we're we're not a, we're not able to work with you know even seventy you know, percent of the artists that come to us um, wanting to, to to collaborate with us, um, and you know it's a lot of challenging conversations around you know it's not necessarily like we're not trying to work with exclusively like the, the biggest artists, but we're trying to work with like the most forward thinking artists who are in it for the right reasons have. The most innovative ideas, um, and really want to like go back to back with us on, on, on building this out. And I think what happened with you know the the early days of NFTs, when it was the weekend, Halsey, Eminem, Snoop dog dropping like every week, um, it left a bad taste in people's mouths because it became like this super financialized. Like artists were either doing it because it was an easy way to make a quick buck, or, or like a lot of QuickBooks, millions of QuickBooks, or it was um, just because it was like the thing that people were doing. It was like, oh, people are dropping NFTs now, we're going to drop an NFT. But it wasn't tied to any larger concept. And I think it left a bad taste in a lot of artists' mouths. And so really what we're doing is like, we're we're going to artists and saying like, we want to launch a community. Yes, it's, it's powered by web three and NFTs under the hood, but like, that's not the focal point. The focal point is, is community and enabling experiences that haven't previously been possible on the, the rails of the current industry. And so with every artist that we're working with and so many artists and so many managers and artists and meetings that we have it's like they'll say we've been pitched every nft idea under the sun for the last 18 months but like this is the first thing that actually we think will resonate with the fans and will resonate with the artists and you know there's obviously been a a bit of a prickly fan sentiment around NFTs because I think, you know, so many, uh, artists came, came, approached it in the wrong way, um, over the course of, you know, 2021 and, and 2022, um, that there is a little bit of, a. Uh, you know, we have to do undo some of those stigmas and some of those sentiments. There's a lot of, like, hand-holding that um, is involved with this, with the fans. And, you know, we work really closely with the artists on, like, the most effective ways to message it to, to fans and to help them feel comfortable entering into this world because it's not something that's going to, like, happen overnight. It's definitely something, it's a process. But I think, you know, the way Pelé, for example, rolled it out was, you know, most of these artists, there's no, like, we're not, they're not asking, asking anything of fans day one or even month one. I think it's really just like inviting them into this world and sharing with them exclusive content, things you can't see anywhere else. None of that is necessarily tokenized from the jump, but, you know, bringing fans into this world played, played at a beautiful job where like they launched December 1st and, you know, Emerson, the, the drummer had been teaching himself, um, Unity, Unreal Engine, one of the the two. And it was building out the world of Obsidian in in actual 3D. And so he spent uh, every other day, he did the 12 days of Obsidian. So every other day leading into Christmas, he released a new three-minute excerpt of like a 3D exploration of the world. And there was no... Uh, none of it was tokenized necessarily, but it brought fans into the world in this immersive experience in a way that just like they had never experienced before. And he you know, put up a trailer on socials and was like, you know, if you know, he put up a 15 second version on socials every day and directed people to see the full uh, three minute version in the community. I think it's a really interesting way of um, of, of artists uh, inviting their you know, collaborating directly with their fans and bringing them into this world in a way that current socials like everything's trending shorter and shorter like content for most social platforms it has to be extremely broad and relatively quick and to the point like you you can't really post the five minute tour recap video of the milwaukee show on instagram without it killing your algorithm but there's certainly fans that want to see that every second of that up. So, you know, this idea of putting 10, 20, 30 second recaps on on socials and then driving the real fans into that next layer to experience the whole thing, um, you know, it really resonated with with their fan base and is something that we've been testing out with a number of other artists with amazing results so far as well because I think that's like that's the most frustrating thing, you know, beyond the inability of artists to like, you know, g- directly connect with their fans. The most frustrating thing is just like it's the TikTokification of everything. It's the fact that like everything is trending shorter and shorter. We've got one minute songs, ninety second songs. Like the bridge is a lost art. Like we just lost the middle eight of of songwriting entirely. Yeah. With how how things have trended, and now we're we're in the process of losing the music video. Like labels are no longer investing in music videos because they just don't see their return on investment. It's all like casual short form content. You know, I, I one. Major label executive, I, I don't know. I haven't seen this verified in writing, but he was saying like music video views are down fifty percent, and that's for like the biggest artists Whoa. in the world. He wasn't talking about like you know emerging artists. Like and, you know, and oftentimes you'll you'll put it, release the music video and you'll get you know, maybe a hundred thousand views first week, but then you'll get like three million on like the fifteen second reels version. And so right. labels are no longer investing in music videos, and I think music videos are like. They have arguably pushed culture forward more than any art form of the last 30 years. And they've always been a passion project and a labor of love, but they've been an essential part to every artist's story. And for those to now be effectively falling by the wayside because they're just not algorithm friendly is like an incredibly like dire situation it's It's honestly tragic, so when we talk to artists, it's like we want to build this space where you don't have to worry about algorithms. you can just share your full unbridled creative vision directly with your fans, whether that's the you know, six-minute extended edit of the song as you really originally envisioned it being heard, or the four-minute director's cut of the music video, or anything else that just like isn't necessarily uh, algorithm-friendly. Like we want to build this space where artists can share things directly with their fans in a way that just like you know isn't possible or, or doesn't connect and, and on the current rails of the industry.
0: Let's dive. Let's dive into that because I think it's an interesting jumping-off point, right? Because if the Music videos, it, it, yes, you can make, you can give them a space to be able to to move people down funnel to enjoy those experiences. But ultimately, like if they're not feeding an algorithm, if they're not being able to generate revenue, it's gonna be a lot harder and harder to uh, create that content. Like there's just not if there's nothing if there's no revenue supporting it. So how do you make up for that? Like how do you replace that model if if that is an, an
1: exploration? I mean, digital assets make it possible to monetize these music videos or to even crowdfund for music videos. You know, we're working with, uh, on, we're in talks with an artist who was kind of one of the biggest, um, musicians on, on Patreon, um, one of the few like musicians to develop up through Patreon and actually kind of cross over uh, into the traditional music industry. And she wants to use the platform to um, actually crowdfund her next campaign. It's really important to her that the next campaign have really fully realized visuals. And have the full music video experience, not just music videos for one song, music videos for every song. And so she has that precedent with her fans and that relationship of you know bringing them into the process and and having that kind of financial subscription based precedent that a lot of artists don't have. So the uh, the concept of being able to then take that one step further and bring that into web three and launch a community where the community feels like they're actually like part of the creative process. They're seeing the vision boards, they're seeing things as they percolate, and they're potentially even like collaborating with the artists directly. I think that's a big thing that we're um, trying to facilitate with our communities is, you know, all of our communities have this studio surface that you you click into a separate tab in the community and it's kind of like the UGC layer. It's the social layer of the community where fans can upload fan art, user-generated content, photos from live shows, memes, uh, videos from the tour. Um, and and none of it's tokenized necessarily. It's really just like trying to bring all of this content that exists all over the internet, again, under one roof and then creating rails for the artists to recognize their favorite contributions. So at the top of each uh, top of these pages, there's, um, an artist pick section where the artist can go through and, and boost their favorite, um, contributions from that week and then reward those people with, you know, we call them creator medallions, effectively, you know, uh, a badge that says, you know, I was recognized and um, I'm a creator within this community. And the idea being that hopefully some of these creators can develop their own following within that community, sub communities within that community. And eventually this, this concept of you know, artists co- releasing co-signed releases with their favorite, uh, with their fans, with like their favorite creators within the community. So this idea that, you know, potentially we can do, you know, I create some merch items or I create some, you know, digital assets or I create a remix of um, some Tyco artwork that he's done. He says, oh, I, I love this. Like, let's release this as Tyco X Derek Davies and sell it to the community, sell it within the community and share those proceeds 50-50 or say proceeds can go to a community treasury to fund, you know, community activations, a community meetup, some kind of special event for the community. So this idea of like, you know, really like building actual rails for, you know, artists and fans to create value together. I think, you know, that's something that is said often in web three is like, you know, web three allows, for the first time it allows artists and fans to sit on the same side of the table and create value together. But that's like a really slow burn concept for the average fan. Um, short of them buying an NFT and seeing the value go, seeing you know line go up and and, and value accrue, um, which is not really what we're about. We're not we're, like our focus isn't presenting NFTs as speculative assets. You know that's actually right. the emphasis of our, our focus. Like artists and and artist managers, especially, are some of the most risk averse people on earth. Like the idea of like presenting anything their artists do as you know, a social token or a spe- speculative asset is not something that they are. Uh, that most most artists or managers are are looking to explore, and so um, it's not a primary focus for us. We're looking to find other ways um, to bring artists and fans closer together, and so um, that's a real big piece of of the studio surface. And it's been incredible. I mean, you go into the Palais Royale, Royale community or the Greta Van Fleet community, you know, there's hundreds of posts a day in many instances, and also like some incredible content like a lot of it's memes, a lot of it's like photos from tour. Um, but a lot of it's like, you know, especially in the play community, like a lot of it's like really beautiful fan interpretations of this world. Um, and you know, the fact that, you know, previously this was just scattered all over the internet, it's really powerful to bring that all in one place.
0: Yeah. agree. I'm, I'm fascinated to see where this goes because Traditionally, you know, advertisers have taken the the brunt, you know, of the ad supported model, and and they've it, they've paid for the access to be able to get in front of uh, users at, at scale. I think what Web three has shown is that a lot of, it, not simply from like a patronage perspective, but like a lot of fans are willing to, you know, chip in, you know, call it a couple of dollars a month if it meant that their artists were going to be able to create more and, and be able to have a more direct relationship with them. And so I'm interested to see how it develops, not just at like high price points, but what does it look like to have like a subscription or special access? Like we, we continue to see like with Patreon, with Substack, with OnlyFans, like all these subscription models where like people are, are clearly willing to, to put money out there if they feel that the quality is there. And I think Web3 is going to be an, an interesting avenue for it. There's another oh. point you brought up earlier I wanted to make sure we don't lose track of. So you mentioned how you know, effectively for an artist, their audience is fragmented, right, between all of the different social channels. And so one thing I'm, I'm wondering how you're thinking through is you're effectively inverting the fragmentation to the fan in the short run right because if now they have to follow a bunch of different fan pages that could be seen as like more work than just going on IG where they have like a dedicated feed of of you know all of all of their artists so like how do you think about that in the long run of of you know how how these may interact
1: yeah man you're you're getting ahead of me on the uh, on the roadmap but um that's definitely something <laughs> that, uh, is in front of mind. So we just introduced fan profiles. Um, so fans can have their name, location, their avatar, their favorite song. Uh, it displays uh, anything that they've collected in the community. Also, their recent studio posts. And so fans can start to actually build relationships with other fans. Um, right now, everything is siloed within each artist community. So all of my Tyco assets are in my Tyco profile. Um, I have my separate Play Royale profile. They're all siloed experiences, but in the you know not too distant future, we'll be uh, making all these communities interoperable. So you'll have, um, you know, currently you have one username that can show up in multiple communities, but you'll have one fan profile where you can arrange all your favorite assets. And um, honestly, even like, Build a social experience around it. Ex- export it to socials, almost like a Spotify Wrapped experience, where you can really flex your fandom, and whether it's fandom of one particular artist or a fandom of a number of artists, and and in there, it's things that you've collected, shows that you've attended and checked in, into to claim a collectible, um, things you participated in, things that you've posted. So it's not just like financialized. It's not just, you know, who's bought what. It's things. It's who's bought what, who's attended what, who's collected what, who's um, contributed what in the studio. So um, really like having this, you know, badge that demonstrate that shows your journey as a fan. And so, you know, the, the real, um, the, the goal is to you know, eventually make these communities interoperable. Um, so you can carry your fan profile and you know, your, your you know, Evan, uh, a disco, I calls it a data backpack, which I, which I always yeah. love. And so you, you can carry that from one community to another. And, um, you know, with the ultimate idea of like, uh, eventually this looking like, you know, basically an interoperable network of artist owned social effectively every artist owns their own individual social network that where they own the audience they own the data they own the relationship with those fans but then that can plug in seamlessly to another artist's social network and so that's getting a little bit ahead of ourselves here but i think that's the kind of you know the the grand vision i mean that's what you know to me medallion looks like at scale is kind of the most robust possible community platform allowing artists to own their own social graph and own their own, um, fan experiences. And so, um, I think it's a really exciting, um, opportunity. And so, you know, we're, we're, we're starting small, kind of putting one foot in front of the other at the moment, but like, that is definitely on the wave of kind of where we're, where we're headed for sure.
0: No, it's exciting. I mean, and therein lie like three web three principles, ownership, composability, and interoperability and doing it in a way where value sits at the front for for fans and artists. And so it's not that they have to jump through all these hoops. It's just native to the experience. Like I, I can't describe, I hope everyone in the audience like goes and tries to one of these fan clubs because it's such a smooth experience. And it's also like choose your own adventure. Like if you have a wallet, connect the wallet. Like I can see my Tyco membership you know, NFT like in my wallet. Um, and so to that end, actually, I was like doing some perusing before and it's been pretty impressive. The scale of some of these communities to date when, you know, a lot of our listeners will be familiar with whether it's like sound XYZ, which has like 5,600 holders, or you look at a traditional like PFP collection, maybe they have like six or seven K. These fan communities are like in the tens of thousands. What is it? Greta Van Vliet is like over like 20 K at this point. Yeah. It's, I think a, a hot button topic in web three at large in these communities is how do you provide value at scale? I think something that like music is probably much more adept at thinking at because these artists have massive communities already. So where like where is your head at in terms of like how you build products that work for tens of thousands and, and hopefully much more in the future?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's, 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 a, it's slightly different. than I think how a number of other Web3 ventures and, and companies are approaching it. But I, I think, you know, these, these artists, I mean, if you want to call them businesses like they effectively are um, they're used to having um, that many fans slash users. Um, you know, they've just never had a way to efficiently manage them and efficiently, you know, share slash sell to them directly. I mean, I think artists are, you know the last major brands to go direct to consumer effectively like if in any other industry you went and said hey we're going to separate you from the customer data for your most valuable product they'd look at you like you were insane but that's just you know that's just the standard in music um and so building rails to you know bring artists into the D2C era 20 15 20 years late um is kind of the name of the game here and i think we look at to see as a you know uh, taking it a step further as as direct to community in this context and i think it's you know it's a powerful notion and the idea that artists can share something or or sell something directly to their fans and spend zero dollars on marketing and spend zero zero dollars on on boosting a post you know taiko um did a limited run of shows um in sacramento over the summer which is where he right around the corner from where he, he made his debut album and um sold you know over 50 percent of the tickets to just to community members uh, without spending a single dollar on marketing and that's a really powerful um concept and the same with his um science of patterns vinyl where at nearly a, a thousand albums sold again without a zero single dollar spent on marketing um, and i think you know Artists are really quickly realizing how powerful that concept can be. And I think, Joy, just you know, creating something that meets fans where they already are with something that they already understand and perhaps just like a more simplified experience of that. I think even like, you know, obviously, like you go around the major labels now and they're all like, oh, Discord's the new thing that we're getting all our artists on to, to talk to their fans and they can talk to their fans free of algorithms. And it's like, yes, you could talk to your fans free of algorithms like for now, But also, like you still don't own that uh, that data. So Discord is so closely aligned with Web three, but at the same at the same time, it's still a platform um, that owns the your audience data and doesn't share that um, with artists. And I think it also doesn't necessarily provide a like a friendly. You know, fan experience. I think, you know, there's obviously been no shortage of conversations on, on this podcast and others around like the frustrations of, of the Discord experience, even for the most hardcore Web3 communities. Like, imagine being the average fan wading into these waters. And it's it's overwhelming. It doesn't feel necessarily unique or native. And it's been an interesting data point for us where, you know, Tycho was promoting his, he'd launched a Discord in the beginning of 2022 and had been promoting it for like nine months prior to launching um, his Medallion community. And he had, 900 people in it. And he launched his medallion community and had, um, you know, 2,500 people and within the first 48 hours. And we saw similar numbers. We've got a fan fleet, um, you know, almost like three, to four to five to one um, within their medallion community in the first forty-eight hours versus wow. a Discord community that actively been promoting. And so, um, even though there was no you know complicated Web three piece to that Discord experience, and it was actually you know we were the ones who actually had the Web three piece running invisibly under the hood, um, we've seen adoption is is much quicker when you actually, um, you know, create an experience that just feels familiar and accessible to fans. And I think, you know, speaking back to the, um, subscription model, I mean, I, I think it's worth noting, like all of these communities to sign up for the community, it's always open. It's always on. It's always free. If you have a digital wallet, you can connect your wallet in all the usual ways. If you don't, you can sign up with an email address, your, your name, location, email um, and then you're in the community in 30 seconds um, just as you would be signing up for anything else on the internet and all of those membership uh, community membership medallions they're minted on polygon what negligible gas costs there are we stand behind this medallion not the artist not the fan so there's no digital wallet required no cryptocurrency required um, not even really any awareness that there's an NFT involved at any part of the process, and then you're in. And there's a welcome message from the artist, a welcome video from the artist, some bits and pieces of of exclusive content. And then you gradually introduce incentivization for monetization and buying, selling, trading, et cetera. And so um, a lot, what a lot of artists are doing are um, experimenting with the season pass model, where I think what you find on Patreon is you, you've got a lot of artists where, you know, maybe it seems like a good idea at the time and you've got all these ideas and you you, you launch your Patreon community. It doesn't feel like particularly like custom or, um, or bespoke, but um, you've got all these ideas. And then, you know, 18 months later, maybe you have a kid or you leave for a world tour and it's just like, fuck, how am I supposed to continue delivering value uh, to these paying customers? And so this idea of just like, you know open-ended subscription and perpetuity is really challenging for a lot of artists and so you know what we've introduced with the season pass concept is you know a time-gated three six nine month album campaign long um pass that you know you pay a certain amount there's deliverables um specified up front whether that's physical merch a digital asset um a merch fast pass lane at the tour, first entry into the venue, uh, meet and greet with the artist. Like they're deliverables that are established up front. And at the, when that's run its course, at the end, you retain your season pass digital collectible. And maybe that has value in the future. Maybe, you know five years from now, Taika goes out and says, you know, I'm uh, going out on tour again. If you hold my first five season passes, you get first access to tickets. So you're, you know, you're building this, this network of of data points uh, and like the the, the ultimate kind of proof of fandom where your journey as a fan lives on chain for both you and the artists to see um, so that you can kind of constantly be identifying and rewarding people based on their actual fan behavior.
0: Amazing. Well, Derek, we are coming up at the top of the hour. I know that you have listened to the pod before, so you know what is coming. Which is, I ask everyone what their one big idea is that they want to leave the audience with. So, Derek, I will leave it with you to take it away.
1: I mean, I touched on a lot of them. I mean, I think the the big one is coming back. Let's go back to like the most simple idea of them all, which is like let's make the artist website a place that people want to go and spend time and do things. Like, let's make the artist website. Not even great again. Let's just make the artist website good again. Like right now, the artist website, it's the most underutilized surface in an artist toolkit. It's the biggest afterthought. It's basically like we're going to crop the album cover, the single cover. We're going to throw up the tour dates. We're going to kick you out to socials. Maybe if you're lucky, people will like spend a little bit of time like buying merch there. But like, that's it. And it's this incredible opportunity for an artist like Creative World to just like spill out onto this interactive page where you can actually bring people more into the world and no artists are using it. And so like, that's a big part of our our mission statement is like, let's just like bring value back to this space that, you know, is invaluable real estate that every artist owns and just none put time time in because they haven't been able to, you know, use it effectively to cultivate community. And I think it's, you know, it's only just now, you know, 10, 15 years into the social media era that like artists and artists are kind of like waking up and realizing that. So um, I guess that's, uh, that's not too, too big picture. I mean, it's, it's a pretty simple concept, but I think it gets, uh, you know, lost in the shuffle of uh, some of these uh, bigger brain ideas that we're always tossing around.
0: Hey, sometimes the biggest ideas are are the simpler ones, you know, right in front of us. Where, where can people find more about you, about Medallion uh, and the artists that you're working with?
1: Uh, yeah, so controversially in web three, especially, um, I don't have a personal Twitter account, but, um, you can find medallion on, uh, I know, right. You can find medallion on Twitter at, uh, medallion, at medallion FM on Instagram at medallion.fm or at our, uh, newly refreshed and relaunched website, um, uh, www.medallion.fm. So, um, yeah, check it out. Join one of our communities and um, shoot us an email at um, hello at medallion.fm. We'd love to uh, chat.
0: Amazing. Well, I'm sure your email inbox is about to be flooded. Derek, this has been amazing. So good to actually like take conversations that we would just have normally and be able to record them for people because I think there's a lot of value in everything that you had to say. So thank you so much for your time to everyone listening at home. We will see you next time. Peace.
1: Hey man, thanks so much. One idea on two big brain. Yes, make three, four plays, then repeat,
0: and your whole life can change.
1: Yes, gave
0: my heart and tell.